Hello, friends. It's a pleasure to see you again. Welcome back to the Gallery of Curiosities. I am once again your humble host and caretaker, Leopold. Tonight's exhibit is a steampunk version of the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, The Wild Swans. It's filled with both hardware and social commentary. That's good steampunk. Some might ask, why update fairy tales? Might a solid new take on a classic tale be more relevant than virginal cottagecore princesses knitting one-armed sweaters? Gwen C. Katz certainly thinks so. She is an author, artist, and game designer who lives in Pasadena, California, with her husband and a revolving door of transient animals. Her first novel, Among the Red Stars, tells the story of Russia's all-female bomber regiment known as the Night Witches. Her short fiction has appeared in venues like Glittership, Vasterian, and We're Here, the Best Queer Speculative Fiction 2020. Without further ado, here is Seven Cups of Tea. Seven Cups of Tea by Gwen Katz One This cup of tea is weak and bitter. It's made of boiled roots, and the taste of dirt is still there. Eliza looks dubiously into the wooden cup. She likes sugar in her tea, white sugar especially, two lumps if she's allowed it but she senses that she will have no sugar at all for a very long time. The Prime Minister's face hovers in her mind. His face is commanding rather than handsome, light-skinned, sharp angles, with a clockwork equity lens fixed over the left eye. His words echo in her ears. Little girls don't go to war. What will I do with you? The whole ride over, Eliza was afraid that she would be made to go to war, and that she'd be given a uniform too big for her and made to play a drum, or worse, fly with the wild swans. Eliza doesn't know how to play a drum, and she certainly doesn't know the first thing about flying, so she was much relieved when the mechanical carriage stopped and there was only a tumble-down house in the slums and an old laundress offering her a cup of nasty-tasting tea. She drinks the tea politely, for her father taught her manners. At length, she says in a meek voice, Please, ma'am, when may I go home and see my brothers? The old laundress is counting gold florins into a pouch. It does not occur to Eliza until she is much older to ask where a laundress got gold florins. She says, This is your home now, dearie. It's best if you forget all about your life before but one cannot forget on command, especially not happy memories. With every sip of tea, Eliza's former life burns brighter in her mind. This time yesterday she was sitting with her big picture book, the one her father gave her with the hand-coloured engravings of all the cities of the Great Republic, for he said that a child too young for school could still learn about the world. 
Her brothers were at their lessons in the schoolroom with the mahogany desks and the big mural of the graces on the wall. She has eleven brothers, all older than her and every one of them is clever and charming. But her favourite is Tito, the youngest. Tito is seven to her five and, having only one younger sibling to pass his wisdom on to, he takes his job very seriously. Eliza wonders if she will ever see him again. She only half understands what happened yesterday afternoon when the door burst open in the middle of their lessons and a squad of gendarmes marched in. Everyone jumped to their feet and the older boys drew their small swords and Tito, who was too young to have a sword, put up his fists. For a moment there was a terrible row. Desks and chairs were overturned and papers were scattered everywhere and a gendarme stepped on Eliza's picture book and tore one of the pages. But then her father came out of his office with his hands raised and said, All right, all right. No need to make a fuss. I'll go with you. Only, please, leave the children alone. Late that night, she sat with her brothers on a hard courtroom bench while her father stood in the dock. The room was packed. The Prime Minister said things like seditious language and stirring up malcontents. Her father responded with a speech which made a lot of people applaud, but had no effect on the judge. She wasn't awake at dawn, but when she did wake up, her nurse told her that her father would not be coming back. She knew she was supposed to cry, but she didn't. Now, as she finishes the bitter tea, she still has not cried. She doesn't feel anything. She is like the wooden cup in her hands, empty except for dregs. She wants her brothers. She doesn't know what happened to them after the trial. She doesn't know where they are or even where she is. She lets the old laundress put her to bed. As she falls asleep, the Prime Minister's words circle round and round in her head, a riddle waiting to be unlocked. Two. This cup of tea is rich and hot. She spiked it with a generous splash of gin, hoping it would loosen the staff officer's tongue. She's learned a thing or two in the ten years since she drank that weak draught of boiled roots, but the gin seems to be working on her instead. So I started thinking, why would you say who didn't go to war? Well, obviously because someone else did go to war. Or perhaps they got sent to war. Anyway, that's how I see it. Through her half-addled brain, for this is not the evening's first cup of tea, Eliza belatedly realises that she's on dangerous ground. She was careful up to this point. She used an assumed name and told everyone she was looking for her childhood friend who had run away and enlisted. After a decade with the old laundress, she's thin and wiry, her curly hair cut short and sensible. She has the same light brown skin and the same Cupid's bow mouth, but anyone would be hard-pressed to recognise the pampered daughter of the long-deposed Lord Speaker. But she's not accustomed to gin, and now she's a stray word away from blowing the whole thing. Mentally, she backtracks, trying to work out if she's already said too much. Cannon fire rattles the windows. They both look up. That sounded close, says Eliza. It's not an attack, the staff officer assures her. They don't have the manpower. They just like to remind us that they're out there. All the same, you shouldn't be here. 
It's too dangerous for a civilian. But my friend, please, if you could just look up his name. The staff officer takes the leather-bound muster book from the shelf, flips through it, and runs a finger down the page. No cantrells here, I'm afraid. But record-keeping has been spotty since the war with the Fata Morgana began. If your friend wanted to disappear, you'll have a job finding him. Eliza's last name isn't Cantrell. It is Cano. She knows better than to mention that name. She sneaks a look at the muster book just above the staff officer's finger, hoping to spot a line of eleven familiar names. But there is nothing. Are you sure you can't... She begins, but at that moment a whistle cuts through the air. The staff officer barely has time to say, Get down! before the bomb strikes. Eliza dives under a table as a shower of plaster fills the room. When she emerges, blinking and wiping dust from her face, half the room is a pile of debris. Nothing is visible of the staff officer, except one foot. Daylight pours in through a gaping hole in the ceiling. Despite the staff officer's assurances, the Fata Morgana are attacking. Their crimson airships fill the sky, raining bombs onto the army camp. Gliders with bright red wings soar and swoop among them, their clockwork repeating guns gleaming as they effortlessly dodge fire from the camp below. The army rallies, the wild swans launch from their fortified hangar, they shoot through the air like tiny missiles, their riveted steel wings held close to their bodies, painting trails of black exhaust through the air. One squadron of wild swans moves in perfect synchronicity, like a dance. They launch themselves at the gliders at top speed. Indeed, they have no choice. Their biomechanical implants give them electric shocks if they disobey. The table shakes every time a bomb goes off. The stench of black powder fills her nose. In front of her, gunfire from a wild swan fells a glider. It catches fire and tumbles to the ground like a fallen leaf. A moment later, one of the great ships fires a broadside that tears one of the wild swans into bright metal shreds. The airships move in. A shell slams into one of the field officer's remaining walls and detonates, sending a cascade of bricks onto the table. One of its legs buckles and it tips, trapping her foot. A jolt of pain shoots through her ankle. In a panic, she shoves the table with her shoulder. It won't budge. The gliders are forming up to strafe the ground forces. Eliza reaches down and fumbles with her bootlaces. They're in a knot. She pulls her penknife out of her pocket, slices through them, and pulls her foot free. It's agony to stand, but she does anyway, and sets off for the nearest building at a hobbling run. One of the gliders dives towards her. Her blood freezes within her as he brings his gun to bear. She glances around, but she's stranded in the open. Something hard and heavy blindsides her, knocking her to the ground. A shadow covers her, the spread wings of a wild swan. Each steel feather cuts a sharp black silhouette against the sky. The wild swan screams a wordless challenge. The glider's gunfire ricochets harmlessly off the metal. As it banks and comes back around, the wild swan fires back. A hole rips through the glider's wing and it goes spinning out of control. The wild swan turns to Eliza and lowers itself onto one knee. Biomechanical implants cover its body. Armor fused grotesquely to muscle and bone, tubes running into the mouthpiece of the steel mask that prevents it from speaking. She starts to recoil, but something about the way it moves is familiar. She looks up. Two dark brown eyes meet hers. It's been ten years, but she would know those eyes anywhere.
she whispers. The wild swan winces as electric shocks snap through its body. It launches itself back into the fray. Eliza lies in the rubble, her chest heaving as she tries to make sense of what she has just seen. She looks again at the formation of wild swans. There are eleven of them. Three. This cup of tea is sharp and peppery. It tickles the back of Eliza's throat and makes her tongue go numb. The girl across from her drinks it effortlessly, a big grin on her face. Eliza can't tell whether the tea is a test or whether the girl with the goggles and the wild blonde hair drinks this stuff by choice. Either way, she figures she had better finish it. She manages to drain the tin cup and sets it on the table, which is really just a steel tray that folds down from the wall. Healing a Fata Morgana ship with a white flag? You've got guts, I'll give you that, says the girl with the goggles. Between her tiny frame, her delicate, heart-shaped face and her large eyes, Eliza can't tell if she's a very small adult or a very precocious child. She's not what Eliza expected from the commander of the Fata Morgana. I needed to parley with you, says Eliza. I need help and I find myself with few friends to turn to. So you turn to your enemies instead, smirks the girl with the goggles. An interesting choice. Not every citizen of the Great Republic has the same enemies, says Eliza. And war makes for strange bedfellows. The girl tilts her head. And what bedfellow have I fallen in with? I am Eliza Cano, daughter of Aristide Cano. The girl drops her cup. She jumps to her feet and takes a step back, her hand shaking. It's a lie. Everyone knows that the Prime Minister had all the Cano children killed. You must be a spy. Eliza has no way to prove her identity. She only has the truth. It's no trick. He wanted us out of the way, yes, but even he wouldn't stoop to murdering children. He paid a woman in a slum out in the provinces to raise me and keep quiet about it. Must have hoped some disease or other would wipe me out, but it turns out I'm made of stronger stuff. As for my brothers, he enlisted them in the Wild Swans. They say that they start boys young in the Wild Swans, that their bodies accept the implants more readily. And what? You want me to sue for peace to protect your precious Wild Swans? Don't be daft. I want my brothers back. Everyone knows you've been trying to reverse engineer the wild swans for years, looking for weaknesses. I want to know what you know about them. It's not as if I can waltz into the wild swan headquarters and ask for instructions on how to dismantle their soldiers. The girl with the goggles narrows her eyes, but there's a spark of interest in them. What's in it for the Fata Morgana? My father believed in democracy and peace, said Eliza. When the Prime Minister seized power on a platform of total war, my father was the only one who spoke out against him. If my brothers and I reappear, miraculously unharmed, perhaps these ideas will make a comeback. If not, 
at least you've deprived the Great Republic of a squadron of wild swans. And if you're a spy? Then all you've given me is the plans to a machine we already own. The girl with the goggles looks at Eliza for a long moment. Then she says, Follow me. At the end of the airship is a small cabin overflowing with books and papers. The girl dives into the mess. She emerges with a long sheet of contact paper, rolled up and tied with a string. We designed a machine that could remove the implants from a wild swan, she says. In the end, it was no use to us. We'd have to capture a wild swan alive, and at that point, we might as well just kill him. But for your purposes, it could be very useful indeed. It won't be cheap, and you'll need to find some very specialized parts, but that's not my problem. As Eliza reaches for the blueprint, the girl pulls her hand back. I don't need to tell you what will happen if anyone finds out you're doing this, she says. Eliza takes the blueprint. Four. This cup of tea is rich, with honey and spices. It reminds Eliza of the fine things she had when she was still the daughter of the Lord Speaker. And for a brief moment, she is taken back to that time. She pushes aside the reverie. She is here in the capital of the Great Republic for one purpose, and it's not to relive her childhood. She touches the cut on her forehead and winces. Let me have a look at that, says the man across from her, reaching out. She starts away from his touch. Luckily, he takes her reaction as a sign of pain rather than revulsion. It's not bad, she says. You're lucky you didn't get anything worse, says the man with a kindly smile. Why on earth didn't you look before stepping into the street? I had a lot on my mind, says Eliza. Oh? The man peers at her. She looks back at him. He only sees a stranger who happened to step in front of his automatic carriage. But his face, she knows. The years have taken their toll, but she remembers. Light skin. Sharp angles. A clockwork acuity lens fixed over his left eye. What could be on the mind of a pretty girl like you? asks the Prime Minister. She touches her mouth with one finger. Oh, I'm embarrassed to say it, but I consider myself a bit of a scientist. I had this wonderful idea for an invention. But I don't know where I'd ever find a laboratory with all the parts I need. A lady scientist. The Prime Minister barks out a laugh. At her offended look, he hastens to add, No, no, I, I think that's a wonderful diversion for a bright girl such as yourself. In fact, I'd like to help. Being Prime Minister does have its perks, you know. Surely someone in my acquaintance must have a laboratory that would suit your needs. This is going better than Eliza could have hoped. Picking the Prime Minister as her target was a risky move, but she's adamant that his money should pay for what he did. The problem will be hiding the way bile rises in her throat at the sight of him. She says, Oh no, I couldn't possibly... He smiles broadly. Please let me do this. It's the least I can do after nearly running you over. We should meet again to discuss what you need. Over dinner, perhaps? Five. 
This cup of tea is strong and black. Eliza snatches a quick drink and then leaves it to be forgotten amid the blueprints and tools spread out on the workbench. Eliza's hands are covered in blisters and calluses, her nails black with engine grease. Has a burn on her arm where she was careless around a steam pipe. She works from dawn to dusk, riveting together steel panels and assembling delicate gear mechanisms until her eyes blur. And in the evenings, she must deal with the Prime Minister's attentions. He has never tried to touch her, nor has he asked what she's making. Once he furnished her with a lavish laboratory, he seemed to lose all interest in it. He seems content to drink nightcaps with her in his parlour or to host lavish meals where waiters whisk the chrome lids off trays to reveal ornately carved pheasants. It's easy enough to squeal and clap her hands like the artless provincial girl she's supposed to be. But her work is wearing on her, and he's beginning to notice. No matter. She's almost finished. Next week is the Great Republic's annual military parade. The wild swans will be there. It might be her only chance. She has no way to test the machine beforehand to be sure it works. She might have made mistakes, or the Fata Morgana commander might have given her false blueprints. But she'll have to take that risk. 6. This cup of tea is scarcely more than a cup of hot water. It's made of dregs that have been boiled many times. A prisoner's drink. A last drink. Sitting in her concrete cell and contemplating a ration of tea and stale bread, Eliza curses herself for her carelessness. She came so close. She finished the machine. But she left the blueprints out, and they were signed with the name of the designer. A Fata Morgana name. If only the Prime Minister had not dropped in unannounced, flowers in hand, talking about an impromptu holiday. If only he hadn't chosen that particular day to take an interest in her work and start glancing through her papers. Her trial was held privately while the Prime Minister was at the military parade. At dawn, she will face the same fate as her father. She doesn't care much for her own life, but it pains her to think of her brother spending the rest of their days imprisoned in those steel machines. They will be back in their hangar by now, refueling after the parade. Their hangar is just across the courtyard from the prison fortress where she's sitting, but it might as well be a thousand miles. Bread and tea finished, she watches the square of light from the high window creep up the wall and disappear. She considers trying to get a little sleep, but it hardly seems to matter whether she's rested or not when she meets her end. A rattle at the door rouses her attention. She looks up. Is it her time? It seems too soon, but without a clock, there's no way to tell. But the door doesn't open. Instead, a voice whispers. The Fata Morgana send their regards. A click, then silence. She eyes the door warily. At last, she tries pushing it. Unlocked. She opens it a crack and peers out into the prison corridor. Empty. 
She slips off her shoes and silently steps into the corridor in her stocking feet. Her muscles are tense, ready for a guard to come around the corner at any moment. But for once, luck is with her. She encounters no one. A man sits in the guardhouse by the front gate, his head lolling, one arm draped lazily over the arm of his chair. His back is to Eliza. She creeps closer. An angry red line encircles the guard's neck. She prods him gingerly. Dead. It's a moonless night. Eliza sticks to the shadows as she creeps around the edge of the courtyard, staying out of sight of the soldiers on the parapets. The wild swan headquarters juts into the sky, a relief of a half-man, half-bird adorning its facade. There are guards at the door, but she finds a small storeroom window with no bars on it. A muscular soldier could never fit through, but one small girl might. Eliza wriggles her way through and drops into a lumpy pile of flour sacks and bags of onions. The hallways are freshly whitewashed and bare except for rows of long lead pipes running along the ceiling. She creeps along, finding her way by instinct, and emerges into the hangar. It's so vast that its ceiling vanishes into shadows. Level upon level of steel catwalks and ladders line the walls, holding row after row of wild swans asleep in their refueling pods. Dozens of them. Hundreds of them. They stand upright, supported by the walls of the pods, for the bulk of their wings leaves them unable to lie down comfortably. Behind their masks, their eyes are closed. They look almost peaceful. The weight of her task settles onto her shoulders. All she can do is work her way down one level after another, hoping she'll be able to spot a familiar face behind the masks. But what about all these other wild swans? Who are they underneath the armor? Had they too been forced to enlist? Built into death machines against their will? She forces herself to look away. She's here for her brothers. She finds them on the third level, all eleven of them in a row. Even in their current state, the sight of them together takes her back to those days when they all did their lessons together in the big schoolroom with the mural of the Graces on the wall. By now, she knows the structure of a wild swan top to bottom. She sets about flipping the toggles and detaching the hoses that hold the first of her brothers in his pod. His eyes open. It's Alexander, the eldest. Wonder fills his eyes as he sees Eliza there before him. He reaches out and touches the side of her face. She puts her hand over his. Beneath the implants, it's warm. For the first time in ten years, tears sting her eyes. She releases his hand and looks away, busying herself releasing the rest of her brothers. One by one, they come awake, surrounding her in a mute circle. But there's no time for a reunion. She leads them along the catwalk and out of the hangar. They are hurrying along the corridor when she rounds a corner and runs smack into a soldier. His eyes travel across her and the group behind her. He brandishes his rifle and opens his mouth to call for help, but Alexander steps in front of Eliza and raises his hand, making a gesture she isn't familiar with. Whether the wild swans have a silent language of motions, or whether Alexander knows the soldier and this is their own private mode of communication, Eliza can't say. 
All she knows is that the soldier closes his mouth and steps aside to let them pass. Having an honor guard of wild swans is, it turns out, an excellent way to pass through the city unimpeded. The handful of pedestrians and gendarmes they encounter hastily move out of the way when they see who she's with, though that does nothing to quell her tense nerves. They climb the flight of stairs to her laboratory. The wild swan's steel boots sound like an entire army on the march. Eliza's machine sits there in the dark, like a moor. Alexander, you go first, she says as she turns on the gas lights. She helps him with the machine's many connections and closes the door, doubt in her own work suddenly flooding into her. If she made a single mistake, the device could tear her brother apart. She squeezes her eyes shut as she flips the toggle. The machine rumbles to life. Within it, Alexander cries out. Her heart in her throat, Eliza has to suppress the urge to force open the door and pull him out. At last, the door opens. Out steps her brother, clad in nothing but his own brown flesh, marked all over with scars and welts, but whole. Human. Eliza, he says, haltingly, his tongue laboring to form words after ten years of silence. You're alive, and you came for us. She throws her arms around him. As he pulls on a cotton shirt and trousers out of a pile that she has ready, she helps her second brother into the machine. That's when the city's alarm bells begin to ring. At the fortress, the gaslights are going on. Did they find out about her escape? Or did someone discover eleven wild swans missing? Either way, her time is running out. But she can't speed up the machine. Her second brother emerges. Then her third. She's just closing the door on Tito when she hears a pounding on the stairs. Gendarmes rush into the laboratory, rifles in hand, shouting for Eliza and her brothers to put their hands up. Eliza ignores them and flips the toggle. The gendarmes rush the machine, tearing her away from it. One of them grabs a steel pipe and slams it down on the machine's works in a shower of sparks and steam. Tito screams. The gendarmes break open the door of the machine. Tito comes flopping out, his arms still trapped by the machinery. No, cries Eliza. The Prime Minister enters the laboratory, the aquity lens on his eye gleaming. Eliza Cano, he says. I thought there was something familiar about you. I see I should have put an end to your family ten years ago. Seize them. They'll all be executed in the morning. The gendarmes move in, but Alexander steps in front of Eliza and holds up his hands. Brothers, he says, you serve the Great Republic. So do I. My brothers and I have fought and bled for it for ten years. But is this what you want the Great Republic to be? The playground of a petty tyrant? We were once a free land, a land where anyone could speak without fear. It's what our father died for. We can be that place again. The gendarmes hesitate. They look at the Prime Minister. Seven. 
This cup of tea is a smooth earl grey with two lumps of sugar. It's the same sort of tea she used to like when she was a little girl. Now, she thinks, two lumps is too many. Her tastes have changed, but the important thing is that she's drinking it here, surrounded by the ones she loves. Tito sits on the divan next to her. His senseless arm hangs at his side, bits of steel and wiring fused permanently to his flesh. But he's smiling and laughing along with his brothers, and there's light in his eyes. When the Great Republic held its first election in ten years, the people overwhelmingly voted for Alexander as the new Lord Speaker. His first act as head of the newly convened parliament was to negotiate a peace treaty with Fata Morgana. With no more need for a large army, Tito was put in charge of decommissioning the rest of the wild swans and helping them adjust to civilian life. The Prime Minister was arrested. Kidnapping is only the beginning of a very long list of charges that are coming to light. Eliza's role in the whole affair was quickly forgotten, except by her brothers. But she's too busy to dwell on it. She's turned out to be quite handy with biomechanics. She hopes to use her new skill to cure diseases or craft artificial limbs. We could still have him executed, says Alexander. He's certainly done more than enough to deserve it. Eliza shakes her head. That's his game. We'll have him sit through a real trial. A fair trial. I don't think the jury will go easy on him. She raises her cup and takes another sip. It really is very good tea. The lure of a good cup of tea cannot be overstated. An uncle of mine died and ended up in hell. The devil gave him his choice of three rooms where he could choose to spend eternity. In the first room, there were people hanging from the walls by their wrists and obviously in agony. The second room was filled with people being whipped with metal chains. The devil then opened the third door, and my uncle saw loads of people sitting around up to their waists in excrement, drinking cups of tea. Uncle Rutherford decided instantly which room he was going to spend the rest of eternity in, and chose the last room. He went in and picked up his cup of tea, just as the devil walked back in, saying, All right, everyone, tea breaks over. Back on your heads. Our reader this evening was the wonderful Jasmine Arch, a narrator, writer, and poet whose brain thrives on chaos and caffeine. She lives in a rural corner of Belgium with four dogs, two elderly horses, and a husband who knows better than to distract her when she's writing. Find out more about her and her work at jasminearch.com. And now, friends, raise your own cups of tea and join me in a toast to send you off mind-reeling into the night. Let's toast to bread, because without bread, 
we'd have no toast. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under Creative Commons International 4.0 Non-Commercial Attribution No Derivatives License. Story copyrights remain with the authors. This episode was produced in March of 2022. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com. I do enjoy looking at old stories through a steampunk lens. Certainly much more fun than steam disco.